Can I welcome everyone uh, tonight? Um, I'm Elena Kennedy. I'm the principal here at Mansfield College, and it's my great honour to invite you to this special ceremony in which we are introducing um, our newest honorary fellow. Um, we have present here one of our other honorary fellows, Ben Ockrey. Uh, I'm delighted that he's with us, and um, I want to just to say um, briefly that. Um, when, we, when we create an honorary fellow to join our community here at Mansfield, we, we look for a number of different things. We look for someone who is distinguished in their field. We look for somebody who has um, done incredible things, who is uh, inspirational. And, and we couldn't have a better person than the person we have with us tonight. Uh, the composer Erwin Wallen is, has been described as a Renaissance woman of contemporary British music. I mean, she really is an extraordinary, extraordinary musician and, uh, and a creative being. Uh, she was born in Belize, but she's very much a British composer and musician. Hugely prolific, talented, and internationally respected. Recipient of, a, of an honor from um, <coughs> our own honor system. And the substantial list of prizes that she's won speaks for itself. But I'm going to turn over to our professorial fellow, Georgina Bourne, um, to uh, give the citation um, for, <coughs> for, um, our, for our special guest tonight. Can you do that to me, please? And if you've got the mic on, I do so, yeah. Is the mic working? Yeah, okay. Yes. Well, thank you very much, uh, Helena. And uh, uh, so, uh, <coughs> welcome, everybody to um, our little ceremony this evening. We are here to celebrate Erilyn Warren's election as Honorary Fellow and to welcome her to Mansfield. Since Erilyn is internationally renowned as a composer and musician, it's my pleasure as a music fellow here to convey something of her life and achievements. Erilyn was born, as Helena said, in Belize and grew up in London studying music and composition at Goldsmiths College, King's College London, and at Cambridge. And usually she's combined a successful career as what is still referred to these days as a serious composer with a life as a singer-songwriter, releasing several albums of her songs. The tally of her works and collaborative projects is a long and distinguished one. In a minute, I'll pull out a few highlights. But it's a joy of our getting together this evening that we'll get to hear some of her music later, performed both by Ellen herself and by Matthew Sharp and Dominic Harlan, who are long-standing colleagues of hers and who have commissioned some great music from her. And they're going to play a few of her pieces. But first, a little context. Pursuing a life as a composer is not for sissies. <laughs> very, few, very few composers today manage to make a living from their musical work. A survey from a few years ago showed that Britain was home to in the region of 20,000 self-identified professional composers, of whom perhaps 5% earn sufficiently well to make a living from their art. To make it as a composer is therefore necessarily to be the possessor of deep wells of talent, along with iron self-belief and determination. But talent above all, <coughs> along with versatility. Purism can be recorded, uh, re rewarded as a composer, but it's a high-risk strategy. For every Harrison Birtwistle, George Benjamin, or Thomas Addis, and please note the gender, supported by recognition and commissions from the dwindling funds meted out by our public arts and music bodies, there are very many young composers who must give up in the face of lack of recognition, encouragement, or financial support. Crossing over between art and popular musics, between concert and opera commissions, writing music for television and film, and popular releases is therefore a way to manage but also to enrich the musical lives for the millions, rather than the aging audiences numbered in their few thousands for the Barbican, the Royal Festival Hall, and the Proms. But crossing over 
between art and popular musics and soundtracks is not only something increasingly done as a necessity. There are incredibly important musical, aesthetic, and historical reasons for engaging in this subtly demanding task. Over the 20th century, the high end of modernist music composition took a root into pure abstraction and sonic esotericism that defeated most audiences, a route that was also gendered and raced, since it systematically excluded any reference to those vital, expansive traditions of African-American-influenced musics that were coeval with it. John Cage famously denied that his advocacy of works attentive to the improvisational elements of performance, as well as the rich timbral qualities of sound itself, had anything to do with the influence of jazz. A stance later repeated by one of his disciples, the composer Christian Wolff, and by numerous other so-called experimental composers of the late 20th century. The route into esotericism then was a race and gendered one, as recent scholarship has begun to uncover. But while these politics are significant, as or more important have been their aesthetic consequences, that is, the historical record shows an almost total inhibition in Western art music composition over the last 50 years about using melody, tonal harmony, rhythm, and pulse. It shows also a denial of and a refusal to learn from the extraordinary timbral and microtonal subtleties, the expanded sound palette and improvisational powers manifest in the electronic popular musics that since the 50s have had their creative origin in the recording studio or in live performance. Think Jimi Hendrix's uh, performance of Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock in 1969. I wasn't there, actually. <laughs> you can get it on YouTube, and it's still amazing. And before that, in blues-inflicted in blues soul musics from Bessie Smith through Billie Holiday to Missy Elliott. Of course, Hendrix Astonishing parodic performance could take us into a whole post-Ferguson rap about race, class, war, the state, global power in the US, then and now, but that's for another talk. What's apparent then is the way that Western art music of the last century has been deeply impoverished musically by its inability to respond to popular and recorded music. It's this vitally important musical challenge that Erlin and other contemporary composers face today. How to reconcile traditions that have been woefully divided. How to integrate what the philosopher Adorno famously called the torn halves of contemporary music, so as to find ways ahead that reconcile and redeem the two lineages. To take up this challenge is not to succumb to some kind of weak and fuzzy musical relativism, Rather, it's to head straight into the historical wind and try to decipher a vibrant musical language or languages fit for our cosmopolitan world histories and their charged present-day legacies. Interculturalism is one buzzword for this ethical and cultural political task, but the mending of the broken soul of musical modernism by the creation of music that means and feels and speaks is an equally urgent task. And this is the challenge that, in part by reference to the core of African-American music history, blues, jazz, and gospel, Erlin's music encompasses, originally, sensuously, poetically, expressively, personally, at ease with and drawing on both art music idioms and instrumentation, and on the melodic, rhythmic, and sonorous vitality of popular idioms. Erilyn has shown outstanding versatility then in adapting to the great historical and musical challenges that face composers today. But professional life as a composer is also marked by patterns of inclusion and exclusion that make it even more difficult for some. My current research on music degree trainings in British universities shows that there's now a bifurcation between the elite universities which teach historical and classical music performance degrees to young white people with a balanced gender profile coming from higher social class backgrounds. And on the other hand, the post-1992 non-Russell group universities, which mainly teach what are called 
music technology or sonic arts degrees to young people from lower social class backgrounds with young, mainly white, men taking up 90% of places. While the musical language shows signs of becoming more integrated then, the opposite is the case with regard to music in higher education, in which it would not be an exaggeration to say that music is itself becoming the ground on which differences of class, gender, and race are not only played out, but exacerbated. Again, a longer story for another time. Collaboration is a feature of Erelin's music. Take her work with the esteemed Brodsky Quartet as a key example, who collaborate also with Bjork and Sting and Elvis Costello. The Brodsky have commissioned and premiered a number of her songs, as well as chamber music pieces. Or take her work with the world-renowned Birmingham Contemporary Music Group, founded by Simon Rattle, who commissioned and recorded her song cycle for soprano and string quartet, Are You Worried About the Rising Cost of Funerals? It's got to take a <laughs> that title. Opera. Opera is another foundational element of Erin's work. Itself a profoundly collaborative, but also an expensive and highly political form. By my reckoning, Erelyn has composed no less than four operas in the last decade. Thirteen. Thirteen. Okay. No. <laughs> I started. Thirteen. <laughs> the last one, I think, Anon, The Songs of Silent Women, in 2014 for the Welsh National Opera. And I gather that her current projects include a collaboration on another opera to be called Sabina, with the leading opera director, David Huntley. We look forward to that. Erin's first opera, Another America, Earth, fused her experimental spirit with political engagement. It was commissioned in 2003 jointly by Nitro, Britain's oldest black theatre company, and the Royal Opera House. Their aim was to open up Covent Garden to the influence of black musicians and artists. The opera was accompanied by debates, family events, song recitals, and generated a huge interest and demand. Another America, Earth, involves an ambitious story of a uh, setting of a story based in the 1930s in the States, which links slavery to the emergent civil rights movement, government abuses of power, and the discovery of Pluto. As the BBC's Tom Service remarked at the time, one of the messages of the opera was to be a symbol of the growing number of works by black composers. <coughs> It remains to be seen, he said, if this is the first step in a real engagement by the Royal Opera House, and whether this work will move from the fringes of Covent Garden's repertoire to the center, from the symbolic to the substantial. Service's comments remind us that opera, with its large-scale collective authorship and extended performance ensemble, is itself a truly social form of music that invariably intensifies exclusions of gender and race. I know of another very senior woman, British composer at the moment, who in her late 60s has just finally got her first art commission. But Erin has persistently sought to work in opera, testifies to her ambition, her admirable tenacity, and her insistent pressing against the exclusionary forces that still permeate Western art music and its institutions. I've gone on at perhaps too great a length about these wider issues without as yet mentioning the sheer range of her work and the many honors and distinctions that Erin has received. Among them was a commission for the opening ceremony of London's 2012 Paralympic Games, music that was heard live by 80,000 people and broadcast to a glo global audience of around one billion, as well as commissions by the BBC, the Royal Opera, Welsh Opera, Opera North, and Almeida Opera. Erin was commissioned in 2007 by the Gewandhaus Orchestra and Leipzig Ballet for a new score for a, for a ballet of The Tempest. In 2007, she was awarded an MBE for her services to music in the Queen's birthday honors list. And in 2013, uh, she uh, was awarded the Ivan Nebello Award for classical music. So Mansfield is now extending this catalogue of honours by bestowing as a token of our highest esteem our honorary fellowship. But our fellowship is limited to a terrestrial one. 
Erilyn has already transcended this by co-writing a song in 2006 with the astronaut Steve McLean while he was orbiting Earth in a space shuttle. But I want to end, I want to end by moving back to the music so as to appreciate the qualities of one of Erilyn's pieces, which we're going to hear later, the beautiful cello and piano piece called Dervish. With its rapturous Brahmsian qualities, its obvious relish and command in writing idiomatically for cello and piano, its virtuosic yet effortless leaps, its bass piano riffs and blue note bends, it draws influence as much from the blues as from the string writing of Bartok and Britain. Dervish is quite simply up there in the major contemporary cello sonata stakes, and I speak as a cellist. So we at Mansfield are delighted to welcome into the college as special a musical <coughs> and cultural voice as yours, Mary. We will both learn from and hugely enjoy your company, and we are ourselves honored and grateful that you're joining us. Sometimes it gets so cold that I have the television. Sometimes it gets so 
So to get another fantastic um, accolade on top of that is, is more than I probably deserve. Um, but what I do realise is that the life of a composer, even to uh, some of my fellow musicians, um, can seem an impenetrable mystery. And um, so what I will try and do is talk about what I think are some of the basic principles that actually affect all composers. And as Georgina magnificently said, um, the composer's life is not an easy one, but there are certain, what fascinates me is trying to think about the underlying principles that were made in music of all traditions and of all times. So what I'll be talking about is quite personal to my own output, but hopefully there will be similarities with, with other contemporary composers living today. And the first consideration is time. As um, composers, our job is to manipulate time. So, um, oftentimes I'll be asked to, uh, with the commission, what the commissioners have in their mind uppermost is how long that piece is going to be. And that's the first question I ask. So, when Matthew Sharp will be playing Devastated, he said, I want a five minute piece. There, for me, that is then the parameters with which I would work. And then I, I think to myself, now, do I want that five minutes to sound like an hour? I don't want that five minutes to sound like five minutes. So, so a piece, a big piece of work for Boris Ashton for um, it was an oratorio. That was 50 minutes, and it had to, it could not go over 50 minutes because people would be getting tired because the choir had to stand up to work for choir and orchestra. But the minute I knew that, I started to think about ways I could actually manipulate time so that uh, because 50 minutes is quite a long time of continuous music. And it wasn't an opera, it was an oratorio. So I, most of my time is spent thinking, how can I make that 50 minutes feel like 10 minutes? And that, there's a technical way you can achieve that. It's through dealing with transitions, how you set the tempi, you know, things like that. So it's quite practical, you can, you can address that issue. And I was very pleased because at um, one of the performances, somebody came up and said, do you know, that only felt like 10 minutes. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, but composers often talk about that, but that's sort of the nub of it, and I just feel very privileged because we, we, that is our job to, um, when the audience are held captive as you are now, it's like how do you mould that time? How do you move from one experience to another, one musical moment to another? And um, um, that's, but, but apart from that, it's how do you actually calculate how long it will take to write a piece of music? Uh, that is actually quite a, can be a tricky thing, because currently I'm working on several projects at the same time. I decided as a composer, if I was going to be a composer, I would try and earn my living being a composer. I didn't realise that was a foolhardy pursuit, but um, that is what I try and do. So at the moment I'm composing an opera with David Pattney, and um, that is a work called Sabinus Beowine, it's about a psychoanalyst who was first a patient of Yule, and then... Um, went on to be a renowned psychoanalyst in her, in her own right, and she's been rather pushed aside by history. But in that opera, we have many people from, other people from history, including Freud, Einstein, Goebbels, Stalin, and even Siegfried from Wagner's Ring Cycle, so I'm tussling. The main thing is, time is the least of my considerations. How can I present Freud on stage? I have actually set Einstein, but I'm not quite sure what to do with the other characters. Um, 
So that's one of the things, but I'm also working to work for choirs and orchestra. I'm setting a sonnet of Shakespeare, and that will be about 20 or 25. And it's quite interesting to me how some of the commissioners uh, confuse length with um, uh, value for money. So that is going to be 20 minutes, but I know the commission would like that to be 50 minutes, but it's, uh, the work actually needs to be 20, 25 minutes. And so I'm working on that. And then another thing that's on my table at the moment is um, uh, there's going to be a, a photographic exhibition at V&A, and they want me to play the piano, but playing popular songs of uh, the 70s and 80s, so reggae, clip, clip, so um, lovers rock. And I'm, my sisters know more about this music than me, so I'm going to have to pull them up, but I'm calling that Tottenham Tunes. But that one is quite special to me, because I will be um, playing as well. So it's like all the time you walk around juggling all these different ideas, and then just last week, somebody called to say, um, now this commission may or may not happen, Emily, it's quite a big, it's quite a big, big deal, but we would like to come up with the title for the booklet, just in case you get the commission. <laughs> but in the process of thinking of a title, I think, oh, I'd love to write that piece now. So, so it's, that's the crazy life of a composer. It's not, I mean, I think if you're, possibly if you have some Bertussel, you might get one commission year, it's humongous commission, you can just work on one thing. I, I work on several things, it's not ideal, but in a funny sort of way, I relish commissions that brought to me, that forced me to think of things that I possibly wouldn't, wouldn't have done. Um, but performing is also important to me, and so it's a thing I try and keep up, you know, not the world's best pianist or singing, but I find that the act of performing really fuels the composing. It's a separate part of the brain, but through performing you really do understand what it is like to be on stage. And when I'm writing for other musicians, I, I always imagine them sitting on the stage. Um, the other thing that's quite interesting being a composer is that while you're busy writing new pieces, old works are being performed. So last year, for example, a piece called Mighty River, which was written which was commissioned to mark the um, 200th anniversary of the abolition of the Slave Trade Act. And it was, it was commissioned to be performed on that very day at the very church that Wilberforce would meet. That was quite an incredible, that was quite an incredible thing. Uh, but I remember thinking that this is a commemorative piece and that's it, it, it stays over. Um, because certainly in this country there's, there's quite a lot of... Um, public commissions, pieces that, and there's always been such in history, pieces that mark events. And, uh, but last year, BBC Philharmonic played that work. No, it's a BBC Symphony, sorry, I wasn't getting confused. Symphony played that work. Uh, whereas Philharmonia had half an hour rehearsal on the day to present this work. Uh, it was going to be 15 minutes, but I did actually push for 15 minutes more, seeing as the piece itself was 20 minutes. Um, um, but when BBC Symphony played it, they had about five rehearsals. And that was marvellous for me because rather than hearing the work come, come together in a rush, I could actually, um, it was a new conductor, new orchestra, new space, and it was a new for live radio broadcast, but I could really sort of check my score and make sure that what I'd written was what I'd intended. And there were little adjustments I made in Tempe, things to do with little details that actually make a vast difference, like bowing, how you bow, how you phrase certain things. And so, as a composer, you know, at that time I was also working on and on, and on was rehearsing. So I was going between and on in Wales. Um, I actually missed the dress rehearsal because I had to be at the performance um, of my team, which, while it's an old piece, they still continue to live with you. So it's a very... Sometimes I think maybe I should stop writing soon because it's like having all these naughty children. You actually do have to take care of all of them. Right? <laughs> what happened to the old ones? But um, I'll play a little bit of my two in fact, um, because this is a work that weaves spirituals into its texture.
So the, the idea of that piece was to have a motor perpetuum, so the idea of the river always forging ahead, so that was the idea of that piece. Um, as a composer living at a time when there is really, I think it's true to say there's no uniform um, <coughs> contemporary musical style that predominates. We, it means that when a composer, make, when we make our scores, we can't like, say, Handel or Bach, just write a few sketches and, and a musician will come in and understand the ornamentation, the harmony, the chord shapes. So our scores have to be a bit more than a sketch. They have to, um, they mustn't have too much information so that, so that musicians be, become baffled, even though I know some composers like baffling performers. <laughs> but they must, they must somehow convey the spirit of um, certain exact details so that the, I always tell my students, you must imagine that, well, try and imagine yourself being run over bus firstly, and then imagine a piece being played. Will it sound the way you would imagine it, without you having to go up to perform, or even to be at rehearsals? So I was, you know, I continued to think, if I can write a score, that can, you know, I can walk into a room and it can be as I intended. That is, that, that is an achievement, because to write a score these days, um, there's so many different sorts of performance factors practices about, and so many different styles of proliferating. So it's sort of one of the problems of our time, what is a score, and how can, how can we, it's the only thing that we'll leave behind, but how can it convey ideas? <coughs> so I kind of envy the Baroque composers. Um, and I mean, I learned this firsthand. I was commissioned by BBC to write a piece uh, which had to use elements of Handel's fireworks music. And so it meant I looked at the sketches of Handel, and fireworks music is fantastic, it's just fantastic bit of music. When I looked at the sketches, I was so shocked. I was thinking, dang, you didn't have to sleep, but like you write all the notes and all the instruments. There were some things were very sketchy, bass line, bit of fiddle bass, not very much melody. Um, but it's, everyone's living in a time where you, you could do that. But I'll play a little bit of this, a uh, third movement of a work I call Spirit Symphony. Uh, it's actually for two orchestras, and I called, I actually initially called it Speed Dating for two orchestras. <laughs> and I thought that was a bit of a flippant title. It's another uh, live radio broadcast. So I called the BBC and said, I'm sorry, the title's changed to Spirit Symphony. And they said, no, no, you can't do that. We've organised a speed dating event at War Festival Hall. <laughs> so we have to stick with the title. So I I'm responsible for I'm responsible for courtships, if not marriages. Um, so <laughs> uh, 3.44, 5.32, where I use Handel's bass line, and then you hear the tune coming in at the end.
curious about music from other times and from other cultures. Analyzing music which is removed from one's own time or culture can inspire new ways of thinking about one's own work and often new ways of working. Um, and it, when I think of composers say like Philip Glass or Steve Reich, it's their travels to, to Ghana and to Africa that totally revitalized the way they looked at rhythm and the way music moved. And it's, their influence is very great to this day. It is also important to me that I tell the stories of my own time, and whether it's in chamber work, songs, ballets, or orchestral works, this commitment applies. But I've relished composing music theatre works, and um, as I said before, I'm now composing my 14th opera. I don't know how this has happened exactly, because writing opera, there's always bloodshed, because there's <laughs> usually somebody falling out of somebody else. It's always it's crazy. No, I mean, I, I, um, I've met some very eminent composers who, when I say the word opera, they start to tremble and shake. <laughs> it's honestly true, because it's very, um, it takes a lot of commitment. You can't, it's not like you write the work and then you hand it over. You have to be at rehearsals. Well, I think you do. And there's so many decisions that have to be made after the work, often very practical considerations to do with movement on stage. And there's usually, there's usually disagreement with the director and the musical director, and there's a sort of etiquette that has to happen, but is often not observed. <laughs> so, but I, I just love writing because I feel you can tell stories in such a direct way. Um, and my particular process is I like to write the vocal score first. I don't know if you know what a vocal score is. It's where, so the libretto's written all the words and the text, and that takes a while to chisel, but for me, after that, I like to set the words in music and the piano, and just have a piano sketch, because that's very important. That those vocal lines carry so much, and it's only then that then I start to orchestrate and do all the colouring, flashing, flashy bits. But having said that, um, the orchestra's job or the small ensemble's job isn't just to accompany that that the music surrounding the singers has to often convey a different story. It certainly has to be part of the atmosphere. So um, often you can play with opposites. I, I had a character in an opera, I still think about him, his name is Don. And Don would chop off body parts of people and he would come and he would say, I didn't mean to, that was his line. So, <laughs> so, I represented him. <laughs> <laughs> obviously telling us he was lying. So, but it's a very, many different stages to composing opera. One of the operas that I think was a real turning point for me was, actually, Helena might know of these people. June and Jennifer Gibbons, the silent twins. Um, I, I've worked with many different writers, and sometimes I've set my own libretto. But at the same time, April DeAngelis, a wonderful playwright, and I came across this story about the silent twins, and we said we have to do this as an offer. So that's the first thing, writing an offer that you, that you can bear to live with for maybe up to five years. Uh, Jennifer and June Gibbons, the heroines of our offer, were complex, highly creative, obsessive characters. They were teenagers, though we traced their journey from um, childhood to, to about 18 years old. Uh, they barely spoke to people, and when they did it, it was often in a made-up, gibberish type of language. And they had um, very complicated rituals. In, in other words, one, couldn't, one might eat for the other one. They would alternate, alternate the days. And if they, if they strayed away from these rituals, it was, you know, they'd have these terrible fights. And as they got older, their life became more and more possible. Literally, they couldn't live with each other. They couldn't live without each other. Uh, but their strangeness and the fact that they were black in Wales and have a good rest at a time when there were no other black people meant that they were treated, they were, people were scared of them. And somehow they ended up being committed to Baltimore without limited time for, uh, actually I set this in the opera for steam sweets, um, bit of sellotape, but it was ridiculous what happened to them. And Margie Wallace, uh, who, who once sang, she campaigned for them and it was her that really uh, helped to get the twins out of Baltimore, but we spent a lot of time with Marjorie, and the feeling that you could 
you know, it's, 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 it's very, uh, what's the word, it could be problematic setting uh, people's lives in, in opera in this way, but we felt we wanted, we wanted to, we felt opera was the only way we could really tell their story, and Marjorie helped us a great deal. Um, so this was performed at Almeida Theatre. I'll just show you a little bit. And in the making of this opera, what was very difficult, I'd written music, and um, but I kept being told there were no there were no black opera singers in 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 England in the world actually. So you're going to, you're going to have to turn it to musical where you know where the vocal lines are easier to. We stuck to our guns and we have two great singers. So we're going to play a little bit. Of this really should be from. Um, no, should it be four? Mm -hmm. um, and it's four, but you can just play it. It's okay if you play it. Sure. Yeah. yeah. This is from the um, beginning. On, on this particular opera, because so many people knew the story, um, the audience, you know, were packed out, they could have gone on for another week, and <laughs> something about choosing what story you choose to tell is, is sort of very important, and uh, they all made of a lot of young people, and I was so pleased about that. Um, opera is one of those things that, I mean, I certainly didn't know much about opera before I started to write but it is very much seen as an elitist activity, but as an endeavor to take part in it, it's quite incredible. And the, the last up for Anon, I actually worked with young girls from um, in, in Birmingham, in academies, and from many different backgrounds, but a lot of young Asian girls, and I worked with sex workers too, just to, because this opera was about the exploitation of young women across the world. And, looking at all, all cultures really, but what was amazing after having these workshops, which were essentially storytelling workshops, so I would speak and I would say, um, now there's, this ha happens in the story, what do you think might happen next? And the thing Anon is, is my Anon is actually a retelling of the Manon, Manon Lesko story. But, I, and I don't tell the girls this, but they would, after an hour, they said, oh, how can we get into opera? We didn't think you could tell stories like this, stories about living today about our own lives. And so that's why I like writing operas. I think the things you can show on stage, you still might not be able to show in a film. But not all my subject matters have been serious. Um, 
uh, last year I decided to take uh, my own production of Cautionary Tales, that's the setting of the Hilaire Belloc. This opera was originally commissioned by um, Opera North, and they said you can either choose that story or that story. And I thought Hilaire Belloc is such a fast, fantastic, unbelievable text. And um, we managed to get the rights from the Belloc estate. And um, this is a 50 minute opera, intended for children, but those. The language is so, um, what's the word, sophisticated, adults enjoyed it too. So I'll play a little bit of this. Um, I, I decided what happened was, Anon was supposed to go to Latitude Festival, and at the last minute, WNO felt there wasn't enough rehearsal time. So stupidly, I said, Oh, I've got another opera for you. Forgetting that, actually, we had no production, we had no singing, we had no set, no, nothing. So in six weeks, we got it together as an experiment to see if we could actually, because the opera is only for four singers and three. So three in the band. So this is the, what you'll see is just a little trail from what we did, but it's very um, uh, Houston production. <clears throat>
can do with force, it's quite amazing, force, just forcing us through the van. So the idea is to tour that work. Um, so the last thing I want to play is a, is, um, a commission that came well, a couple of years now, 2012, uh, to compose some music for the opening ceremony of the Paralympic Games. Now, considering that that, that was happening in August, my call didn't come until March, and I was already working on other things then. And then I think I was forgotten a little bit about because then it was April, and then um, and then I was called into the Three Mill Studio. And they said, we've got all these, we've got 430 voices, we've got them already, and there's going to be London Symphony Orchestra, and then we want that work to be about, um, well, conflating several ideas, of Stephen Hawking's ideas, uh, human rights, human endeavour, uh, Isaac Newton, uh, and it can't be more than four minutes. <laughs> That's what piece. We don't know where it's going to go exactly. In fact, we don't really know what the ceremony is going to be about. We don't have any money, but we'd like this piece to be known. Great. And then the other thing, we want you to write another song uh, for Denise Lee, a wonderful soprano, who won an opportunity for years ago to the opera competition on television. Uh, and we, um, we want some music when the athletes come in. We don't know where that's going to go exactly. But we just want you to write her something about something uplifting. So, um, uh, that's what I did. But the fact is that um, Bradley Hemmings and Jenny Seeley, who were the creative directors of the Paralympic Games, um, their job was tremendous. They had to sort of really weave a through thread. And I've worked with Bradley several times before on outside projects or site-specific projects, uh, where he, he comes up with a concept and say, go off and write a song. Um, so one memorable occasion when it was the Queen's, one of the jubilees she had, and it was in Slough, and Slough has a very mixed, diverse population. So he said, come and see if you can do something with Slough. And uh, so I came up with the idea of calling this work Rani, Queen of the Stars, and Queen would be spoken in many different languages, and this was actually performed to the Queen. But Rani's really brilliant at coming up with ideas that, are, that, that somehow visually realised very well. And I, so I was very happy to be part of the Paralympics, but it was very... It was um, working in that environment where there's so much going on, there's dances, there's, it, it was a team of, of hundreds really, and the deadlines were great, and Paralympics just didn't have the money that the Olympics had, and so we were sort of the second cousins, and everybody's very stressed. I would go home and be worried for, for all the other people, what they had to do. I thought, well, I've only got two songs to write, so that's, I'm worried what, what they had to do. But I was very pleased with the Paralympics. Um, certainly, and um, the work for the choirs and the idea is for amateur voices, uh, an orchestra. I actually, you, you've heard cautionary tales where the writing's for trained singers who can really do lots of things with the voice. I really love writing for untrained voices too. And um, um, I remember things everything had to be passed, the text had to be passed, and I got a call the day before we go into recording, and finally said, you know, uh, Higgs Boson, if you read about Higgs Boson, we've, we've got to get that in. So I found a way of, of changing the text and making it work. But it was a really great joy working with the amateurs, so I'll play a little bit. So this is, it's called Principia, and then after we'll have some questions. Um, it's about, let me see. <coughs> Yeah. What is it? It's, uh, yeah, twenty-two, twenty-eight. So it's there. If you go back, literally. <laughs> 